I always tell my kids that, you know, I'm 61 now. I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. Oh, right? that's so funny. It's so funny. But you are so young at heart, which is so, so commendable. That's important in life. Welcome to Elements of Styles, the business podcast that trades in scarce thinking for community, conversation, and ideas in abundance. Each week, I, Mark Styles, sit with professionals and entrepreneurs, both local and global, and learn how they each add value to their communities, their partners, and their teams. Please enjoy. Hey, folks, welcome back to Elements of Styles. Today, I am grateful to have Bob Flynn of William Ravis Mortgage. Bob is a loan professional and has been for a significant amount of time. Hey, Bob, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning, Mark. How are you? Yeah, long time, over 35 years, right? Yeah, let's go full disclosure, legal small print right here. Bob is the person who gave me my first opportunity at a real estate closing. So I am truly grateful for Bob and his existence here on the planet and uh, welcoming me into the real estate world when I had no idea what I was doing. So first and foremost, Bob, thank you for that opportunity. Oh, uh, you're welcome, Mark. So let's do this. Yeah, definitely. So where are you at now? So right now, I'm uh, just turned 61, right, Mark? So I'm, you know, at the tail end of my career, although I could probably do this forever. Right. Um, you know, it's just so, so rewarding to meet people for the first time, helping them to get into their first homes, sometimes second, third, fourth home. It's just really rewarding. I find, you know, it a challenge uh, every time I meet somebody new because everyone has different situations and stories, right? I can't believe you're 61. So I'm looking at you and you look no older than 60, but I, <laughs> well, thanks for that. You're, you're, you're welcome. But I, I, I will say, I want to commend you on a wonderful post that I saw recently that you posted that said, uh, and then don't quote me on it, but it was, um, if you haven't grown up by 60, you don't have to. Yeah, you don't have to. You're, you're <laughs> definitely probably never going to. So I always tell my kids that, you know, I'm 61 now. I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. Oh, right? that's so funny. It's so funny. But you are so young at heart, which is so, so commendable. That's important in life. It really is. So, so 61, you've been doing mortgages since when? Wow. So, so that uh, you're, you're, you're going to bring me way back, right? Well, you so already told been, every, you already told yeah, everyone how yeah, old you are, It's right? been over 35 years. So, wow. yeah. So, so I literally started my own company in 91, but it, you know, it goes back further, you know, all the way back to, you know, mid eighties, um, you know, right out, of, right out of college or did you start? Yeah, right no, not, not immediately. Um, you know, I took some time off and, and did, you know, the, the bartending route and, you know, continued from how I made money to get through college and realized that, hey, this isn't going anywhere. And it came back to what one of my college professors, one of my financing professors said, it's like, hey, rates are in, you know, the 19, 20% range. So back in the early 80s, um, Jimmy Carter was president while I was in college. And, you know, talk about inflation, right? right. Inflation was through the roof. Prime rate was in the 20s. Uh, everyone was doing adjustable rate mortgages just to save a couple points below what fixed rates were, which were, you know, almost 20%. And it always stuck with me. He was like, you know, people need to refinance. Every time rates drop a point, they're saving money. You know, this is a profession that you could get into because it's going to continue. Inflation can't stay up this high. It's coming down. You can help people to save money and make money and make a career out of it. That's literally how I got into it. That's amazing because you don't, first and foremost, I didn't learn anything in college about real estate or financing. Well, I learned a little bit of financing 101 stuff. Law school, I didn't take any of the conveyancing classes other than the mandate. You know, so meeting you, I didn't even really truly know what a mortgage was. I was still renting myself. The fact that that professor was forward thinking enough, futuristic, right, to say- yeah these rates have to come down and somebody has to guide them down as a professional. Interesting. So where did you go from there? So, so you're, you're bartending through college, getting yourself through college. You keep doing it because the cash is good. It's That's good. right. For a young kid, it's really good. It's just not sustainable good. And then this triggers into your mind. Where did you go? Did you go to that professor and ask or did you? No, it's an interesting question. So I went to a job fair in Cambridge, a gallery mall. I think it was there at the time. I don't think it's there anymore. Maybe. 
Uh, I digress. So uh, I went to a job fair and there was a company that uh, was out of California and they were doing mortgages. It was Amundsen Mortgage Company and uh, had a great conversation, talked about what my professor said with, with the recruiter and uh, ended up going out to California, joining their training program and, uh, and going to work for them. Uh, stayed with them for about a year, but they were different. They were doing something called Negam mortgages, which Ooh. I really didn't like, right? And for those of you that don't know, they don't do them anymore, but Negam was a, a, a payment cap type of uh, mortgage program. So you could get in at an entry level. They wouldn't change your payment by more than seven and a half percent of the previous payment. But the one thing about that type of program was that you could get to negative amortization, which means that if your payment, because they were capping you on your monthly amount, not on the rate, uh, was less than what was needed to pay at least the, the, the interest part of it, your negative interest would go back on your principal. So theoretically, you're paying principal on principal because they lift those caps every five years and reamortize you so you could finally do it in 30. Negative amortization was something that you could find after five years, you owed more than you borrowed. It was, uh, you know, something that they did away with uh, in 19, you know, and in, in, during the 2008 housing crisis, right. one of the things they did, but I didn't like it. You know, we're more conservative here in Northeast, ended up going to work for a, a bank, university bank or a mortgage company, Northeastern Mortgage Company. And uh, we're there for about four to five years, um, approximately. And then uh, the, how, the people don't realize there was another crisis back then, the banking crisis, Rizlik, right? So that's what I want to talk about. So let's, let's circle back a little bit, if we can, because I wasn't aware that negative amortization loans predated subprime. I thought that was a creation of the subprime exotic, you know, terrible toxic asset loans but they were back in the early 80s also oh, with the, yeah. the, the pick really thing, right yeah really significant from banks out in in on the west coast uh so they try to bring it out east and they did successfully in some of the regions because people like the idea of keeping their payments down right but then people got in trouble because they right. really didn't understand it they didn't have a good loan officer to explain it to them that you had the three options you could pay the the, the payment only, or you could pay the fully interest amount. So you're not neg am, but you're not paying down principal or fully amortization. So you have those three options each month, but people would always fall. It's human history, right? Or human uh, emotions. They always fall on the lower payment, right? Keep right. More money in the bank. So they right. always ended up with neg am. And then five years later, they get hit with a big you know change because they waived the caps, started you again on the next five-year cycle. And it really hurt people. Yeah, and in the in the subprime world, you had people who were out unscrupulous salespeople were out selling the payment. I mean, I always tell a story in our real estate school about the gentleman I saw at uh, the Red Sox game telling me there he was in mortgages and he was pitching payment. He was telling people, "Yeah, you could buy an eight hundred thousand dollar home." for $1,100 and he didn't tell him anything else about it. And, right. you know, my mom always told me if it's too good to be true, well, it probably, it probably is. is. That's right. So that's what happens, Mark, too, when people are not worried about anything other than their home growing, you know, and appreciating so much. And we had those times where they were seeing, you know, 10, 15, 20%, like recently, right? Appreciation. So they didn't care about the payment. They didn't care about the negam because of the fact that the home was appreciating so much. You know, we can always sell it. And that was the mentality until, you know, the market crashes. They're not getting that, that appreciation and they feel forced to sell. It's just like the stock market, right? You know, you don't want to sell, sell you know, low. And no. that's what happens. Emotions, no. Human emotions get into these decision-making and it can really have, you know, negative impact on your short and long-term. No doubt. Let's, let's do the history lesson, right? Because history does tend to repeat itself. I think uh, the subprime mortgage meltdown is still fresh in people's mind, but let's talk about that first uh, collapse that yes. you witnessed. So you were at University slash Northeastern. Yeah, Northeastern was owned by University Bank. In fact, I saw them put the chains on the, the doors of University Bank out of Cambridge. 
uh, on TV. I knew it was coming, but it was interesting, right? Wow. So, so the Tell Fed us about came it. in. Yeah. So the SNLs, the savings and loans, um, the FDIC covers banks. The RISLIC was covering the the credit unions and the savings and loans. And you know they they realized they had a financial crisis on their hands because these uh, banks were underwater. So they had no capital requirements, and they were basically junk running on a bank. And you know they were going to 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 flip over and and be insolvent in in you know a weekend. So they. So savings and loan. I mean, we're talking, it's a wonderful life. We're talking, you know, you're lending what you have in the bank that is other members of the bank's money, right? That is correct. Yeah, that's it. I mean, that's like a credit union. They're, they're a union of, of, you know, people depositors, right? They're using monies. Um, and they didn't have the backing of the FDIC. It was a different insurance entity that would cover, you know, the hundred thousand dollars or your deposits. And it, they weren't comfortable with what the balance sheets were with these SNLs because they just didn't have any working capital over and above their deposits. And that was something that uh, there was a run on a few banks and they couldn't support it. And, and basically, they went into every SNL, every credit union, and, and looked at their books. And I found out we had a huge problem uh, across the country on what they had for their requirements to have capital set aside over and above their deposits. So they were overleveraged. So you have, you know, mom and pop, Mr. and Mrs. Jones, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, were depositing into George Bailey's savings and loan. George Bailey is lending it out arguably responsibly, but all of a sudden factors outside of his control start coming down and everybody who's a depositor sees the news, reads the paper and goes literally running to the bank to say, I want to take my money out. Right? Yeah. And they didn't have enough cash to pay him. And that's basically it. So they, they, it, so what they ended up doing, Mark, is they went into these banks and they said, "Look, if you don't have it, you're done. We're going to allow, allow another bank to absorb you, or we're closing you down. We're shutting you down." That's literally what happened. But it, it affected a ton of uh, different types of loans too, because if your loan's not supported by Fannie and Freddie, and I don't think the general public knows this, if you're a portfolio loan, you have a jumbo loan, or you have a loan that's not jumbo, but it's portfolio held by that local bank, and they call it due, you have to pay it. And, right. you know, that's in the fine print, and people don't realize that. Now, would that happen in this day and age? Could it happen? Yes. Will it happen? No, because of the fact that the government put uh, requirements on these banks to have capital uh, requirements, meaning 6% over above what they uh, have borrowed. So it's, uh, you know, a different situation was back then. So, but they, they shut down a lot of these banks. We saw them put chains on them. Uh, make them liquidate all their assets and sell off. It was a huge, huge cost because the government did step in and help. Um, but it was a, a big uh, uh, factor in, in losing appreciation on properties. Everything went right. down. So that's the late 80s we're talking about, right? That is correct. Early, early 90s. Early 90s, late 80s. That's Blood right. in the street, mess, the undischarged mortgages, lost notes, just a disaster and then it was a disaster it took almost a decade to get out of so that's when i started my own company uh i realized that there was an opportunity there northeastern mortgage company which was owned by university bank had i don't know maybe 40 different uh, locations and everyone once they put the chains on the bank they just went their own way and i saw our opportunity there so i went to the government and actually physically asked for uh, the ability to purchase our branch and get all the phone numbers from all the other branches to come in. Uh, I changed the name from Northeastern to New England Capital, kept the kind of logo, uh, Capital Building over the NE, and, and uh, kept the same phone number and, um, you know, ended up uh, starting a, a wonderful mortgage company for, you know, 23 years.
Right. That's brilliant. Brilliant. You know, where there's distress, there's opportunity, right? That's right. So rates were, you know, uh, artificially high at that point. But again, it went back to my early start that I knew they would come back down when this, you know, this settled. So there were some choppy years for a little while, but I can still remember, Mark, having our first fax machine, right? And it had one of those rolled up wax papers on it where if you smudged it the wrong way, you couldn't read it, but it was such a uh, innovation for us at the time to be able to instantly get somebody's credit report over this, you know, this waxy faxed uh, piece of paper. And, um, you know, it was actually on a roll, so you would just tear it off. But, you know, before you had to wait, you know, three days before somebody's credit report came in. Because it had to come by mail. Yeah, by by snail mail. Everything did. We would, you know, everything was ink and paper, and we would go to people's homes at you know ten o'clock at night or seven o'clock in the morning, whatever was convenient for them, and do a physical application, and have them sign, and and everything was done at their home or at an attorney's office, such as yourself, to make it convenient. Uh, but usually at people's homes where they're comfortable. So it was uh, it was a different era. Isn't it amazing how it's evolved and it's, and, uh, and then you went into the mortgage broker, which was the elite place to be at that time, right? Correct. So at that time, if you weren't a mortgage broker, you weren't doing business because the mortgage brokers captured all the business because they had all the outlets, right? They There's had another all reason the options. For, yeah. Another reason for that, Mark, is they didn't trust the banks. Right. You know, they just put them through that and, you know, no one trusted them. So when they were doing 70% of the business after that Rizla crisis, they were doing 30%. Everyone would trust mortgage brokers to get it done because we only do mortgages. People have to remember, you go to the banks nowadays or even back then, I mean, they are doing everything, right? Car loans, student loans, you know, HELOCs, everything uh, deposits, you know, mortgages on the side, and it's actually all LLCs under, you know, if you go to Bank of America or Wells, their mortgage company is on the side. It's not going to them. And they're selling to the same places that we are, to Fannie and Freddie. But we only do mortgages and we do it well. We're not doing 17 other things. Right. So tell me about that. So the mortgage brokers, that is that where Fannie and Freddie really got uh, traction was after all the savings and loans? Well, no, not necessarily because remember, Fannie and Freddie takes paper from everyone, right? So they're getting it from the banks. They're getting it from the mortgage brokers. They're getting it from mortgage lenders. <clears throat> so brokers were just brokers and bankers were bankers. But again, we're selling all our paper to the same places. But what, what has changed is the brokers were were you know people such as myself how do how do i explain this so there came a time when they realized that brokers weren't being professionals right they were you know used car salesmen or anyone could get into the business uh and they decided that they're going to license our industry so then they had something that it's in the middle right it's a lender so a broker this was after the subprime. So if we're, we're to continue with the evolution, yes, you know, savings and loans blows up and then mortgage broker is the, uh, the um, lender de jour, right? Because they're the ones who are getting all of the business. They're capturing it. Everybody's pushing it to Fannie and Freddie. The appreciation starting to happen. And then all of a sudden Wall Street comes in and, 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 and quenches the appetite of these mortgage brokers and says, you can do whatever you want here and we'll pay you a tremendous amount of money. And like you said, without licensure, like how do you protect the sanctity of a profession? A very true mark. And and yeah. And and when I talk about used car salesmen, I literally mean that you did not need to be licensed to be a mortgage broker. So you had anyone and everyone doing it. And what happened was when wall street came in with these subprimes, these, uh, pulse loans or breath loan, right? You breathe Ninja. against the mirror. If, the, if it fogs a little bit, you could get your mortgage. And they weren't meant to be that. They were meant to be um, a type of loan. And, and I digress. Let me go back. Fannie is, and Freddie were, were the ones that started the, the no income verification loan. So, you know, it, it got taken advantage of by some of these unscrupulous 
mortgage brokers out there because you know you had a a mailman making one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year on paper, and they weren't questioning it at Fannie and Freddie. They were just buying the paper, uh, so it kept getting stretched out further and further to unrealistic realms. And and the the secondary market, Fannie and Freddie banks, they didn't care because the equity was growing and growing. So you had people that were buying, you know, multiple families uh, or multiple properties and multiple families, and they were just expanding their portfolio of, you know, inventory uh, on their their books, and they were, you know, really had no no right to own these properties because you can always sell it, right? Right, and sell that's it for what a they, profit, and that's and they what they said, them. and they said that the last time, and it's simply history repeats itself, right? You can always sell it, right? I mean, if we get into trouble, well, I mean, we're, we're way ahead of it. We can always sell it, even if we're 100% loan to value and this and that, and we trigger a, uh, with the teaser rate, right? Remember the yeah. teaser rate, subprime loans, your, your, your prepayment penalty for three years, so you're locked in for three years, but it changes after two and it gets jacked up by 8% or something crazy like that. But I can always sell or I can always refinance refinance that's right that's right and we're going to have plenty of equity and they were using to leverage so so a lot of people would take their equity because two months later they had another 30 percent, and that was the other thing with appraisers right the appraisers was the buddy buddy system i'll just get a friendly appraiser out there i'll give him two three hundred dollars extra he's going to bring this value into what i want you know using maybe fictional comparables or uh, you know, just inflating everything. Square footage was no, it was a wild west, Mark. It was. And people would just then take the equity out of a cash out refinance, buy another property with no income verification, do it again and again and build up their portfolio. But I can always sell because they're just appreciating right. until they didn't. Of, and a lot of them were at 100% financing and it didn't take long to, to correct that into a negative yeah. place. It's sort of so, like being at that, uh, that, you know, that table where the music plays and, you know, there's all <laughs> chairs, but, you know, instead of having just one chair pulled out, all the chairs got pulled out. Right. Yeah. So let's, well, let's play it out. So most folks know about the mortgage meltdown. Those that are listening, if you haven't, Michael Lewis, uh, The Big Short is a wonderful book. It was adapted into a movie and they did a tremendous job. They highly, really did. Highly encourage watching that. That explains exactly what we're talking about. If you want to take it a step further, Boomerang was a follow-up book by him who talked about different countries and how they were affected by this. Really good. I mean, each country is like an essay. It's, it's a wonderful book. But Bob, what did they do to fix this, you know? Yeah, so so that's uh, you know comes back to to the lenders and the brokers, right? So they basically said enough. Um, you know, they the the uh, the two thousand and eight, two um, Barney Frank, the Frank Dowd Act, Senator Dowd, and and our Congressman Barney Frank here in Massachusetts um, said enough, and and they created a bill, the Dowd Frank Act, and. And they said, we want everyone licensed in this industry. We want to get rid of all the bad guys. So anyone that, you know, were, was doing things uh, unethically, um, doing mostly the, the, the pulse loans, uh, we're getting rid of them. Or we're going to license them and make sure that they do things right going forward. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was huge. They revamped the whole appraisal process. That was the number one uh, item on their agenda and basically said, no, we're going to use management companies to oversee the appraisal process. We're not going to allow the old buddy system uh, to work where, you know, these loan officers can't reach out directly to an appraiser and kind of make their own values. So it went on a wheel of fortune uh, that, that they spun the wheel and it got assigned to an appraiser and that's who was going to do the deal hands off. Uh, that had its own, you know, growing pains, but I think the system worked well. Uh, they made anyone that was going to be in the industry be licensed, meaning you had to pass a, a series of tests, uh, local in the state you're working with, and federally, uh, you had to have something called an NMLS number, which is a, a federal ID number. You had to, you know, pay a fee. You had to keep up with your training. Uh, ethics uh, across the board, a variety of things. 
and you had to be knowledgeable. So it, it made our uh, industry um, certified. It made an industry a profession. Is yes, what it thank did, you, Mark. Right? That's exactly correct. Because you you had to study for that test. Somebody who's in it oh for, God, for yes. 25 years, you're studying because there's a lot to it. It's not yeah. simply take an application and push it through to somebody else and get paid a check. Correct. The end, and the right? majority of people that took that test failed the first time. And if you failed it the second time, you had to wait a year. Wow. It wasn't very uh, rigorous and, and important uh, that, that you did it right. And, and with that, out went the mortgage brokers, right? Correct. So the mortgage brokers, and some of them weren't allowed anyway, because what they did is they got rid of not only the ones that were unknowledgeable, because anyone who just did postal loans, they didn't know how to really qualify somebody to, to, to do it correctly, read a right. tax return or, or know the, the rules and regulations that are you know, multiple. Uh, so they got rid of those people and somebody that had poor credit. Uh, or bankruptcy or foreclosure or uh, just late, you know, how can you counsel people on, on credit and getting a mortgage when you can't take care of your own stuff? So they, they, that kicked people out. Uh, one of the frustrations of mine at that time is those, those bad people went to work for the banks. Mm. So the banks took them and, and the complaint was because they didn't need to pass that MLS ID and, and get certified because the banks were self-policing. So that went on for a little while until they finally realized that, hey, that's no good either. And, you know, the banks were not policing the way they were supposed to be policing. Uh, and uh, they changed that. So everyone now is uh, required to be, you know, certified, registered, pass the test and have your, your NMLS ID number. So what is the what is the structure of the mortgage industry now? If mortgage bro if if the savings and loans are no longer, if the mortgage brokers are no longer, what is the industry uh, de jour? So the, the mortgage brokers are still there, but they're not allowed to sell directly to Fannie and Freddie. They still require to get, get licensed through the NMLS system, but a broker is like a third party. So they'll sell to a bank who then will send it to Fannie Mae. So it's sort of like a middleman that you're paying extra on. So you want to make sure that you're working with somebody who's a direct lender. Uh, so you're getting, you know, the, the best pricing and, and the best service. I'm not saying mortgage brokers are bad because they do need to be licensed. It's just that they are limited on their, their portfolio of products that they can offer for a client. Well, they can't issue a pre-approval, a commitment. They can't clear to close. That they is correct. They have to wait for that third party that they're selling to to get it. So, you know, there are ones out there that are, you know, offering pre-approval letters. They're not worth the, the paper they're written on. Mm. Uh, mm -hmm. They need to be, you know, looked at by that third party, and, and there's just no time for that. So they're doing it, but they're not supposed to be doing it. Right. So where are you? So we, we are a direct uh, lender, Fannie Mae lender, and then with our jumbo products. So remember, jumbo is portfolio. So it's something that's not sold directly to Fannie Freddie. So it's you know the large insurance lenders. Um, anyone with a, a good amount of money, local banks that want to do their CRA, their community reinvestment uh, into their local community, they will lend their own monies. Or if it's not sellable to Fannie and Freddie, you need to go to a jumbo lender, but it is, you know, portfolio, it's held in-house. We have contracts with about 30 of them, uh, all the biggest ones. So, you know, some are in and out based on, you know, their capital requirements and what they want to lend back into the, the market. So we're making sure that we're always going to have the best rates, the best products out there based on uh, those 30 uh, options I have on a daily basis. So how are you separating yourself from the rest of the community now? I mean, you have the wisdom, obviously, you have the experience, you've seen it all, you can kind of predict what's going to happen how are you separating yourself from the from the pack and, and uh, delivering that beautiful service that you do to your consumers? Ah, great question, Mark. So, so with me personally, it's, uh, you know, I went to work I, after having my company for 23 years and deciding that, you know, it's a fighting an uphill battle, doing all the compliance and all the extras that come in with owning your own company. I just wanted to start um, originating again and, and helping people. So I went to uh, William Ravis uh, Mortgage about nine years ago. 
Um, yeah, out of Connecticut, uh, family-owned business. Uh, we wrote about $2 billion in business last year. Um, so they are, a, I want to say a niche real estate company, but it's the high-end areas, right? So I had an opportunity to take over the Brookline, Chestnut Hill, Needham, Natick, uh, Wellesley, um, Lexington at that time. And uh, we have Newton and, and, and we just have uh, a wonderful group of agents. So they, after meeting me and uh, realizing as you just eloquently stated that uh, I have uh, a plethora of uh, information running around in my head, they <laughs> refer me business. So that's, uh, you know, that's a wonderful way to get business. And then 50% of my business is outside of Ravis for agents that I've you know, known for the last 35 years. So they're comfortable referring a client to me knowing that within 10 minutes, I can put together the puzzle pieces. Right. So the one of the things I always tell my agents is don't drive around with a client with no money in their pocket. Buyers don't know what they don't know. And somebody who has been self-employed for a year or somebody that is self-employed for multiple years and you ask them how much they owe, how they make a year. They don't know because it's a net amount. It's after, you know, all their costs to run their business and adding back in depreciation and doing an average of two years as long as the recent year is more. So there's a lot that goes into it. What's available for assets? What can we actually use? So we really know what that client qualifies for. The other part of it is the listings. You know, we know that it's hard to get um, your offer accepted in this, this marketplace, right? It, you know, you have a ton of cash in the system and that I digress, that's a whole other conversation, um, but people are offering cash. How do we compete against that? when we're getting a mortgage. So we do something that's called a certified pre-approval. And it's, it's basically a pre-approval on steroids. All we need to do is have an appraisal done and we're, we're gonna show up at that uh, train station on time every time. That's not always the case with somebody that's buying in cash, right? I have seen more cash buyers non-perform than ever with a certified pre-approval. You know, maybe they're playing the stock market or maybe they were going to get a gift from a parent that, you know, having wine on Sunday afternoon dinner told them, yeah, I'll give you whatever you need until the time come to get it. Right. Or there's a tax involved uh, where that they had to pay 40 percent in capital gains on something, didn't realize it. Now they don't have enough to do it. Um, market dropped. I mean, I have tons of stories where the market, you know, they I'm invested, right? We're, we're, it's going to grow. It's going to double. It's going to triple, you know, uh, Robin hood. It's going to make me a fortune. I'm in crypto. I can liquidate Doge. every time. Dogecoin. I'm, I'm doors, winning. You know? So once I explain that to a listing agent and, and help my clients to have their offer looked at in a different light, uh, maybe even a spotlight, it gives them the opportunity to have their offer accepted. And, and that works, you know, a lot of time. And they're committed, right? They've done the work. They've sat with you. They've gone through the analysis. They've supplied all of the documentation. They are ready, willing, and able buyers. That's correct. So, so, so a pre-approval, one of the things back when they did the, the uh, changes that Dowd Act I talked about is they, they changed the definition of what an application is. So they made it, if you had six points of information in an application, then that's an application. It has to go to fruition, right? It has to complete, either be withdrawn, denied, or closed, right? So the banks didn't want to go through the, the hassle or the cost of making a loan officially an application. And once they were doing these pre-approvals, they realized we got these data points. We have to do what the government told us to do. So they backed off of that. So what they said basically is, you know, put your information in, we'll run a credit report, we'll give you a pre-approval and send you out with, um, you know, a, they call it a pre-qualification, right? Mm. That's the definition of a pre-qual. These things aren't worth the paper they're written on. They haven't reviewed the tax return. So they're taking what the clients, uh, you know, gave them and saying, that's okay, that's it, you know? And it's not, it's not good business, right? The, the typical one I use is the rocket mortgage. Everyone sees it, right? Get on your phone, put your information, boom, there's your prequal, go out and buy a home. 
Well, you right. know, the reality is, is it's not, you know, the person that's doing it is, well, I'm getting a, oh, I don't qualify for this house. Well, I'm getting a raise soon. I'll put, raise my income. Right. Well, Uncle Johnny's dying next month. I know he is. I'm getting $50,000 inheritance. I'll put that in for my assets. Right. And then all of a sudden when it, you know, they go out with it, they get their offer accepted. And the reality is once the bank looks at their stuff, they're like, you don't qualify for this property. You know, that's useless. So then there's a pre-approval. So a pre-approval is the same type of situation, but they take it a step further. They run it through something called automated underwriting. So Fannie Mae has DU, Freddie Mac has LP. It's just an automated system. They put the information in, they've run the credit report and it spits out a, a pre-approval, a pre-commitment. And it says, yeah, based on the information, um, you know, you're pre-approved for this. However, it still doesn't answer the question on you know, reviewing those documents, those asset statements, those tax returns, those W-2s. Um, you know, is there a divorce situation? Are you paying child support? All the things that go in uh, to really getting a certified pre-approval. So our pre-approval is done completely to commitment. So what we're doing is running automated underwriting. Uh, running their credit report and reviewing their documents. We have our clients upload their tax returns, their W-2s, their two months bank statements and not having their visas, right? So something that's very important. People come over and they're not set or they're in between. They don't have their green card, but they don't have their work visas extended. There's so much more information that goes into getting a certified pre-approval. All the things that can kind of, you know, short somebody in getting approved. So once we have that information, we're so comfortable sending out a certified pre-approval, explaining that to a listing agent and helping our clients get their offer accepted. Big difference. And you're calling that listing agent saying, this is a commitment. As long yeah. as that value is there, we're closing. So fear not, we're closing. Yeah, you we have, educate them. Right. And you might have that cash buyer who freaks out because the stock market's down 40%. This person yeah. is ready willing and able that's that's really cool um so so what are you seeing going forward here we're talking uh june 2022 yeah june 2022 right last week was uh was quite the week i'm glad i was way in jamaica last week mark <laughs> when all that news came up um you know expected it i expected it months ago in fact right. we're so far behind raising short-term interest rates um people don't understand that the feds control the Fed fund rate, right? That's the rate that they lend to banks and banks lend to each other. That's all that does. Banks then control prime. So prime is what they use to set their lending rates for automobiles and student loans and HELOCs, and HELOCs right? Home equity lines of credit. Um, the long-term interest rates, fixed rate mortgages are, are really in, in the market, market mortgage-backed securities. And, and the, the, even though the 10-year bond yield is the item we look at, within that, it's mortgage-backed securities. So what has happened is the Fed, everyone has heard of QE, right? Quantitative easing. And what that means is the Fed was just buying paper. They were forcing mortgage rates down uh, by just, just purchasing it. They have $9 trillion on the books, $9 trillion with a T. Wow. What they announced at the beginning of the year is they want to get rid of that balance sheet. So instead of buying mortgage-backed securities, they're going to sell and compete with mortgage-backed securities. So they announced that they, and they did it, $43.5 billion in June. They're going to do that in July. And they're going to do it in August, and I believe again in September, and then go to $90 billion a month until they get rid of that $9 trillion. Is it realistic? No, because they'll squash the economy so bad that it won't happen. But they're going to do it until they feel like they can back off a little bit. Um, it's probably going to take them a decade to get rid of their balance sheet. But the rates have only one way to go. Well, that's the thing. Like, who would buy those when the fixed incomes are going to be higher, right? Um, you know, uh, foreign foreign entities. Um, you know, large institutional players. Um, states states will go in with their pension funds. Uh, you know, Teamsters, things like that. 
to get a guaranteed 3% interest, right? Yeah, I mean, that's... I mean, I take that. My, my interest has been 0.0, .0 yeah. for forever, right? That's one of the things back in the 80s when I got into the business is that, you know, yeah, you know, uh, the numbers were up or at 19%, but you were getting 15, 14% on your money sitting in a bank. You get zero for that now. Right. Well, inflation right. doesn't start because uh, stop because we're adults, right? And inflation's going to continue forever. And nominal inflation is supposed to be 3% annually. Yeah, we're seeing 8%. Is some of it, you know, I, I agree with the feds and they're thinking a year ago that some of it is transitory. But, you know, that's proven that it's not all. So they're going to control it. They're late to the punch bowl. They should have done what we were doing a while ago. Um, Democrats, you know, I, I'm not political here, okay? Okay. But, but, them, but, but having them, you know, spend that $1.5 trillion, dump more money in the system, only hurt us for, for what we're seeing right now. Right. There's just too much money in the system. No one wants to work. Um, you know, they're getting things for free. Uh, it's just causing inflation. It's not helping with it. So, you know, if they were going to turn around, throw another $3 trillion in liquid money into the system, it's only going to make it worse. Um, you know, that's my personal opinion on that. But uh, well, know, it's your show, baby. It's your yeah, show. It's financially sound. It's just it's not good. So and then we've got lack of production. So we've got stagflation breathing down our necks too. Yeah, stagflation is what we're going to see, Mark. So what do you say to a buyer who has been, you know, getting beat up for a year? They've, they've been bidding on houses because it's really an auction type environment. They've been bidding. They've been getting outbid by cash. They're ready. Not much has really changed for them other than the amount of what they can buy, right? So the payment is going to to go up. How do you how do you coach those folks to say, this is still real estate, this is still tangible, this is still the greatest asset on the planet? Yeah, that's that's a good point. I, you know, I I go back to what my parents went through when you know when they bought their home and in, in you know the seventies and and they had that five hundred dollar mortgage payment and they struggled. Right. People don't understand that they struggle. That five hundred dollars was, you know, 30 percent of their income. Inflation, again, it, it's because we're adults. It doesn't stop. So people that are purchasing now, they tend to think about the now, you know, what I'm comfortable with now. And what I try to remind people is it's a long term commitment. You know, you get a 30 year mortgage. Yeah, you might be eating ramen noodles like back in college for a little while, but it becomes comfortable. The payment stays the same, fixed rate stays the same. You're going to increase your income. Your home is going to appreciate. You're going to be paying down principal. That's a thing. It's not a comparison to what I'm renting at. Should I have the same mortgage payment? No, you get a tax deduction. You are paying down yourself. You're paying back yourself with the principal portion of it. You're separating the two. The home appreciates. The principal goes down, and that's how you create real estate wealth. And believe me, the, the payment will be comfortable. I always remind them, what were you doing five years ago? Think about where you were then. Think about where you will be five years from now. And it's crazy to think, you know, yeah, I'm going to be paying $10 for a gallon of milk and and you know, in five, six, seven years. But the reality is it's it's real. You know, you're going to uh, also have a property that's going to be worth so much more. You're going to owe so much less and you're going to have that equity. That's, you know, that's your real estate wealth. But if you freak out and you go and you rent and you pour that money into a landlord's account, you have no equity to spend. Yeah, I just raised my rent on people. That's, you can count on that. That's, you know, that's appreciation. It's across the board. But it's not just on goods and services. It's also in your income. Right. So, you know, think about longer term. So, you know, maybe somebody that's uncomfortable making a little more of a payment because those rates went up. Just remember, long term, it's going to be comfortable for you. So let's talk about adjustable rate mortgages. Sure. quickly. Is that a good option or is that one of those exotic loans that is scary and, and evil? Well, you know, it's the risk reward. Um, I'm not seeing a lot of reward for the risk uh, on having a slightly lower rate. So everything's inverted with the yields right now in the secondary market, those bond yields I talked about. So even though you're, I just saw something on the news that they were talking that 
you know, it might be time for arms and more people are doing arms. Um, no, I mean, the, the, the yield is so slim between the two that the rate difference is not enough to be worth what you're giving up. Um, now, I digress back to jumbos. So jumbos, they are. So we have a big spread between it. And, and, and I should say that historically, jumbos have always been higher than conventional rates, right? So we, we see, you know, you're paying more for a jumbo because it's more expensive, it's portfolio. The opposite has happened. Fannie Mae has such overlays right now, and Fannie and Freddie are in receivership by the federal government right now, basically owned by the government. Uh, and they tell them what to do, and they're making money off these overlays. So a condo over 75%, or picture of giant Excel spreadsheet with headings on the top based on FICO scores every 20 points, uh, property types and loan to values every 5% you put down, maybe on the left. And you fit somewhere on that grid. Everyone's going to fit into a different spot, right? Based on different credit scores, type of property, down payment. Uh, everything has an overlay. So your rates changes based on what you're doing. You know, not everyone can put 40% down and have 800 FICO scores for a single family. So multifamilies, second homes, condos, everyone's somewhere different on that board. Jumbos don't have that. You know, you put 20% down or 10% down up to a million dollars, you get the same rate regardless of where you are, whether you're borrowing $3 million or $2 million. So you fit in their box, you fit in their box, and you get a great rate. Uh, conventional rates are much higher right now. So you can be in the sixes right now for a conventional rate, but be all the way down to 5% for a jumbo. And that's because they're not part of Fannie and Freddie. That these is correct. Portfolio. These are banks, these are investors, these are independent of the government. And that's correct. And they set their own policies. So they have arms. So the, the banks like the arms because they can eventually know that that margin's going to, to uh, or excuse me, the, the caps are going to be in place. So they'll lend money. If they're lending you or me, you know, we got our money parked. I got a lot of cash parked. It's making zero. You know, they're lending it out at 4%, knowing in, you know, if they do a five or seven or a 10-year arm that it's going to increase. So they're willing to do that. Remember, they can borrow their money from the feds. The Fed fund rate was zero. Right. So they got cheap money. They lend it back into the system. And, you know, they don't care because the return is more than zero. Wow. Wow. So let me ask you this, Bob. So super knowledgeable, super, super valuable information. Somebody works with you. They have a wonderful experience. They were referred by either your former clients, friends, uh, referral partners. Somebody's referred them. They've welcomed you into their world as their mortgage professional. They bought a home and had a great experience. They sit down on the Google machine and they're getting ready to type in a review for you. What does it say? It, you know, the one thing that I pride myself on is my entire team. Right, training my team from start to finish. So there is such a smooth transaction. So when we get on that train in the beginning, my client is comfortable filling out the information, uploading their documents securely, um, and meeting every one of those stops on time, appraisal, um, commitment, and getting to the closing table. It's key to part having a partner such as yourself, as you know, you've did a hundred closings for me last year, right? To have a partner that everything is seamless. It works like clockwork. You pull in the station on time. Both real estate agents are awed by our uh, delivery, by our notifications. They get tiles along the way, shows the clients, the agents, everyone involved in the transaction is you're here. This is completed. You're here. This is completed. You're here. This is completed. We're clear to close. And having that communication with all team partners and especially the client just makes for such a smooth transaction at the end that they can't help but, you know, be, be awed and, and want to refer us to all their friends, family. I mean, that's where I get, you know, 50% of my business is from, uh, you know, second, third time um, clients uh, and uh, referrals. So I'm that person, I'm typing it in. I got on the Flincat train headed to Closingville 
And each step of the way, I knew what was coming. It came exactly as it was laid out, managed my expectations, seamless, flawless. I would recommend Bob Flynn. Correct. And his Correct. team. It's and his all team. about communication. Awesome. Awesome. So setting expectations up front, you know, explaining the whys, you know, why do you need this? Why do you need that? And just keeping it so the clients has already done their homework up front. We just got to find the property. Right, right. It's all done up front. So that's for the listing agents out there. It's all done up front. When you get his piece of paper, these people are ready, willing, and able to buy. I love that. All right. So thank you for coming on the podcast. I know it took us a while to get you here, but it's it's that that comfort zone, right? It's like, what is a podcast? Who, who are we talking to? What are we talking about? comfort zone. I love expanding the comfort zone. And one of the things I love most about comfort zone expansion is karaoke. So we're going to get all of our guests that have been on the podcast and you'll see them. You're, you're, you're number 80, buddy. So everybody on there is a like-minded person. They've been here, they've talked to me and they're professionals, right? So it's becoming its own little network within the uh, podcast, but we're going to bring them back together to network personally together. And one of the things we're going to do, Bob, is we're going to have karaoke. How so fun. Bob, Bob Flynn, you're next on the stage. What are you singing? Wow, that's, uh, you know, again, I've told everyone that I'm 61. So there's a plethora of music in my <laughs> head, right? So I think it's uh, Bob Seeger Turn the Page. Ooh. Yeah, a little like throwback, it. right? I like it. That will be, uh, ooh, that's a good one. Ooh, I can't wait to see you sing that one. So, Bob. Thank you again for coming, but we have one more question. The most important question of them all. If someone is hearing this, they're jogging, they're walking their dogs, or they're simply meditating and listening to this wonderful, wonderful knowledge, and they want to get in touch with you, how do they do that? So, so a variety of ways, right? The easiest is probably a, a text or, or a phone call, 508-944-8218. I've had that number forever and we'll literally. continue to have it forever, literally. Uh, or they can email me, bob.flynn, just how it sounds. And it's at ravis.com. And that's spelled R-A-V as in Victor, E-I-S as in Sam. Bob, thank you so much for joining. I know that all of the listeners are gaining and appreciating the knowledge and the wisdom that you're putting forth. And thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, pleasure, Mark. Thank you. Hey, thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice for a new episode each week and share this with everyone and anyone. If you have any questions or comments or have an idea for another guest, feel free to shoot me an email at mstyles at styles-law.com. That's M-S-T-I-L-E-S at styles-law.com. And if you are a real estate professional, be sure to check us out on our private exclusive Facebook page, The Real Estate School at 892 for content and Massachusetts continuing education opportunities. Be well, folks. Today's episode is sponsored by Securitidal. Securitidal helps Massachusetts real estate attorneys, real estate agents, loan professionals, buyers, and sellers with all of their title, settlement, and escrow needs. Securitidal, S-E-C-U-R-I-T-I-T-L-E.com, where security and title come together. This podcast is being provided for informational purposes only. The podcast is not a comprehensive overview of the subject and is not intended to provide legal or financial advice or an endorsement of any product or business. The views expressed by podcast guests are their own and their appearance on the podcast does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Please seek legal, financial, or tax advice before taking any action on the matters or products discussed herein.